Welcome back to Environmental Laws with Thompson Heim. I'm happy to be back with you for another episode. My name is Joel Eagle, and I'm a partner in Thompson Heim's Environmental Practice Group in Cleveland, Ohio. As a reminder, LAWS stands for Land, Air, Water, and Safety. And in each episode, environmental attorneys at Thompson Heim will be talking about a timely and relevant environmental law topic. In previous episodes, we've talked about issues including how to manage environmental risks during the global pandemic, strategies for plant closures, understanding environmental criminal law, a tribute to the late great RBG in her environmental record, handling OSHA inspections, and hot topics in Canadian environmental laws with our friends up north at the Gowling's Law Firm. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Ray Blattner. Ray is a partner in Thompson Hines Environmental Practice Group in Dayton, Ohio, and he's also the office partner in charge of the Dayton office. Ray has decades of environmental law experience, and I'm looking forward to chatting with him about this fast-moving topic of PFAS chemicals. Ray, happy spring to you, and I'm happy to be uh, here talking about one of my favorite topics, PFAS. Well, greetings, Joel, and to all listeners. Uh, it's a pleasure being here with you, and, and uh, look forward to sharing this information. I hope I didn't... Uh, violate any ageist comments by saying that you have decades of experience, but I guess that's just an accurate statement, right? It hurt just a little bit. Okay. Well, you can take that out of me later. <laughs> All right. So let's get right to it. Um, there's so much to talk about with this topic, Ray. Um, we want to cover as much as we can in a short period of time. And this may sound controversial, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think the most complex part of uh, a PFAS discussion is just knowing what to sit, what to talk about and when to stop, because there is just so much, so many topics and each topic has subtopics and you could go on and on. But um, I'm going to start with a quote from President-elect Biden's 2020 environmental justice plan, uh, where he specifically addresses PFAS. And, and I think the quote, it's very short, but it sets the table quite well for what we should be expecting in the coming years. The quote is, instead of making empty promises with no follow through, Biden will tackle PFAS pollution by designated PFAS, designating PFAS as a hazardous substance, setting enforceable limits for PFAS in the Safe Drinking Water Act, prioritizing substitutes through procurement, and accelerating toxicity studies and research on PFAS. So there's a, a lot to unpack there, Ray, and I know we'll be getting to some of the specifics there, but um, clearly, Biden um, is focusing on PFAS specifically, uh, and we've seen already some uh, fairly significant action, right? Absolutely. Uh, at the federal level, US EPA's regulatory initiatives began in earnest with its December 2019 unveiling of its PFAS action plan. The plan called for the evaluation of the need for drinking water standards for PFOA and PFAS chemicals, two of the most prevalent PFAS substances, designation of PFOA and PFAS as hazardous substances, thereby subjecting those materials to potential claims under the Federal Superfund Law or CERCLA for investigation and cleanup, issuance of groundwater cleanup recommendations for PFOA and PFAS, and the development of toxicity values for certain of the PFAS chemicals. Over the shorter term, the plan calls for development of new analytical methods for accurate measurement 
of the PFAS materials, annual reporting under the Emergency Planning Community Right to Know Act's Toxic Release Inventory Program, and not surprisingly, enforcement. Over the shorter term, the plan hoped for the development of new analytical methods. Congress legislatively embraced the action plan, incorporating its elements in the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2020 in December of 2019. Besides adopting those uh, items in the action plan, it also established groundwater cleanup guidance, setting a screening level of 40 parts per trillion, that's trillion with a T, and establishing preliminary groundwater remediation goals of 70 parts per trillion. As directed by Congress in June of 2020, EPA added 172 PFAS materials to the EPRA Toxic Release Inventory Annual Reporting Requirement. That reporting requirement is applicable to companies that manufacture, process, or otherwise use 100 pounds per year of any of the 172 PFAS chemicals. That's an extremely low threshold. And the first report is due July 1 of this year, barely three months from now. So companies should be assessing today their operations and supply chains for the presence of any of those 172 PFAS chemicals. There is a de minimis exemption. Uh, it is 0.1% for PFOAs and 1% for PFAS. That is those percentages in any of the materials that go into their manufacturing process. So Ray, there's, there's one thing that I think listeners, um, I like to, to say this whenever I explain PFAS, and that is um, there isn't one PFAS compound. There aren't 10 or 172 um, like that are subject to EPGRA. There are thousands, and I have not read two articles or papers that describe the number the same. It's either 4,000 or 5,000 or 6,000 or 6,000 plus, but um, all PFAS are not the same. That's why uh, there has there have been uh, regulations at the state level for PFOS, PFOS, PFOA, PFOA, uh, PFNA, and several others, but not so many more PFAS compounds. Um, so I try to pronounce it um, a little bit different: PFAS versus PFAS. Um, but but you know, as with any chemical, EPA and any state agency does or should be regulating based on. Uh, human health and, and environmental risks, and the the toxicity studies for um, the large number of PFAS chemicals is really in its infancy. PFOS and PFOA are the only two that have uh, fairly substantial um, toxicity evaluations, such that states are now, you know, feeling comfortable passing their own regulations, and that's why US EPA is is focusing on these two in particular, but. I just I always like to remind people because there's this tendency to just say PFAS, PFAS. All we're sampling for PFAS, and um, you have to be uh, everyone has to be careful with what with how they describe that. Oh, absolutely, good good point, and um, it'll be interesting to see which chemicals, which of the many, which of the five thousand US EPA and the states target in the in the uh, weeks and months ahead. Um, 
most of the focus has been on groundwater contamination, but uh, recently US EPA has issued its interim strategy for PFAS in federally issued wastewater permits. Those are the National Pollution Discharge Elimination System permits, typically issued by states, but uh, there are several where uh, several states where the feds do the permit issuance. But so there's a there's a with respect to the wastewater discharge, there's a shift from drinking water to uh, wastewater and impacts on surface waters primarily. The interim strategy calls for monitoring. They've identified 40 particular PFAS materials for the initial uh, monitoring requirements. And while there are no effluent limits, no specific discharge restrictions, the uh, strategy calls for implementation of best management practices to control the wastewater content, uh, uh, the PFAS content of the wastewater. Uh, what those BMPs will be remains to be seen. Uh, and likely states are going to adopt uh, their own version of this strategy. And we'll see the best management practicing evolving over, uh, over time. Uh, in December, just last uh, December 18, EPA also issued guidance on the destruction and disposal of PFAS and materials containing PFAS. Uh, They've identified, the agency has, has identified several uh, preferred, if you will, destruction and disposal methods, most notably combustion, typically incineration, and thermal treatment. However, a, a number of concerns have arisen regarding the problems caused by incomplete destruction in, in terms of uh, uh, ambient air concentrations. In fact, Sierra Club, has sued the Department of Defense to prevent incineration of its aqueous firefighting foams because of the concern about incomplete destruction and the resulting air uh, impacts. Hazardous waste landfills are also identified as a, a, a preferred method of disposal, as are solid waste landfills, but only if those landfills are equipped with liners, leachate collection, and treatment systems. Important to note that uh, EPA has a focus in the Biden administration on environmental justice in connection with permitting uh, of uh, pollution creating activities, as well as uh, uh, as a general approach regarding impacts of uh, industry in communities. And these environmental justice considerations were specifically uh, uh, noted in the strategy uh, and so it's clear that vulnerable communities in the immediate vicinity of disposal or destruction areas are going to be, uh, their voices will be heard in the permitting process. In mid-January, uh, EPA issued an advance notice of proposed rulemaking uh, to regulate PFOA and PFOS as hazardous waste and hazardous substances. Again, as I mentioned earlier, this would subject those materials to the CERCLA investigation and cleanup program. To date, nearly 250 of these Superfund sites around the country have confirmed PFAS detections in groundwater. And in fact, concentrations exceed the 70 part per trillion agency guidance 
at 47 of these sites. Finally, with respect to federal initiatives, in February, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, EPA issued two more rulemaking initiatives. One, EPA announced its final determination to proceed with establishing drinking water standards for PFOA and PFOS. This determination required EPA to find that those materials may have adverse health effects, check, substantial likelihood that contamination occurs with a frequency and at levels of public health concerns, check, and regulation will reduce health risks. We hope that's the case, that remains to be seen. Finally, EPA has proposed requiring community water systems serving over 3,300 citizens to monitor for 29 specific PFAS materials. That monitoring is to occur between 2023 and 2025. So that's what's been happening in recent months. There's much more to come at the federal level. I feel like this is one of those, well, how else was the, the play? Mrs. Lincoln's situations. I mean, there's just so much going on and you just touched upon uh, in a short period of time, um, five or 10 different categories, just at the federal level and haven't even scratched the surface about the state level. Um, we know that states are taking their own action. Um, they've been taking their own action for years. Uh, there was a sense that, um, the federal government wasn't moving fast enough. Uh, I think states were happy to see the um, February 19 federal action plan, but thought it was a little too little, too late, or just um, too late. So many states like New Jersey and Michigan and California, um, Minnesota, New Hampshire, so many states are, are doing their own thing. And what one of my takeaways here is that uh, there's a reason that the states are doing this. This there's a crazy amount of investment and time to do all these things, and I don't think states would do them if they didn't, you know, feel very strongly that there was a, a reason for it. And and PFAS are so unique in the world. Uh, well, just in the world in general, they're they're globally used. They've been used for a very long time. Um, they're unique uh, because of the properties they exhibit. They are um, very uh, highly stain resistant, um, heat resistant. Um, they uh, uh, grease grease resistant. So you see them in so many different applications, like uh, carpet and other uh, fabric stain resistant um, applications. You see them in um, in waterproofing. You see them in in flame retardants. Uh, Ray, you mentioned the AFFF. The aqueous film forming foam. Um, that's the, the foam that's used to put out um, petroleum and other um, you know, fires that can't be put out with water. And this AFFF has been used since the 1960s uh, without being too you know, dramatic or, or hyperbolic. It's been used everywhere. I mean, it's, it's been used at airports. It's been used at, um, on Air, at Air Force bases. It's been used at facilities. Um, for firefighting purposes, uh, it's been used for training exercises, which I think is one of the major issues. You know, there are only so many fires um, that have needed to be put out with AFFF, but you have to be prepared for it. So you you sp spray the AFFF 
in training exercises and it of course gets into the groundwater and previously it wasn't a concern or it wasn't understood to be the concern that it is today and um you know you hear that uh, Department of Defense facilities, for example, are the elephant in the room in the PFAS contamination world just because of the amount of AFFF used at at, um, at firefighting at, uh, at Air Force bases. And Ray, I think close to home, you have uh, an Air Force base uh, with known PFAS issues, don't you? We do. That's the uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And, you know, this it's really a life and death issue with the firefighting foam. It is a very effective flame retardant and uh, the military as well as aviation industry is reluctant to move away from something that works, but we're certainly seeing the concerns being raised. And as of now, I believe the Department of Defense is not using the uh, PFAS um, uh, firefighting foams for training exercises anymore, but they're still going to use them in, in an actual fire. So there's a tension there as there often is in these environmental issues. Yeah, and it, it firefighting, uh, local firefighting departments across the country, and I know in Ohio, um, Ohio has been trying to, uh, re, you know, recall isn't the right word, but request that firefighting departments turn in their AFFF with, with um, with PFAS in it, but as you just said, it's life and death, and death, and there really aren't suitable alternatives at this point. So it, it really it puts uh, firefighters and those in need of firefighting applications in a in a very precarious spot. Yeah, very much so. And you, you mentioned the states, uh, Joel, and and you're right. The states are taking the lead in many respects. Um, no doubt. The federal programs will trickle down to the to the states, but the states are not waiting for that. Uh, at least six states have established maximum contaminant level drinking water standards uh, that are significantly more stringent than the federal uh, recommended 70 parts per trillion. These are numbers between 8 and 20, excuse me, parts per trillion, between 8 and 20 parts per trillion. Uh, many other states have issued guidance at low levels without enacting actual uh, drinking water standards. California is requiring um, purveyors of drinking water to notify the state resources board if they find detection levels above five for uh, various PFAS materials. And states are now starting to look at air emissions New Hampshire has issued a permit that requires the source to uh, employ a thermal oxidizer to eliminate PFAS from the emissions. And I think you mentioned, uh, Joel, one of our favorite states for environmental regulation, um, New Jersey. And um, I grew up in New Jersey. My father used to say, wherever the country is going, New Jersey will get there first. And I think that's certainly the case with respect to, uh, uh, in many regards, with respect to environmental. New Jersey has a very aggressive property transfer law that requires uh, investigation and, in some cases, remediation of environmental conditions prior to a deal going forward. And they have now included in the required preliminary assessment uh, an obligation to consider PFAS. So uh, it's States are getting very aggressive with this. Ohio has uh, uh, last year conducted um, monitoring at 1,500 public water systems 
many states are doing that sort of inquiry. Uh, Ohio was fortunate, only found detections in 6% of the uh, public water systems, but virtually all of those were below the 70 part per trillion guidance that Ohio has adopted. Uh, two systems were above those action levels. So, so far, so good in Ohio. It's a relief to hear that because when you consider uh, the media coverage and environmental regulations at the state and federal level about PFAS, you would think that um, you know the the word de jour is ubiquitous. And I would say whoever first used that word, Ray, ubiquitous with PFAS, if they got a dime for every time somebody's used ubiquitous regarding PFAS, they would be. Uh, a billionaire right now, but you know this this idea that it's everywhere. It's it's been tested um, now in Ohio and in many other states, and you know you can't necessarily draw major conclusions. But at least in Ohio, it's nice to see that it, it hasn't been detected at extremely high levels. Of course, at places like Wright Patterson, it was, and and remediation is is going to be needed um, there. Yeah, Joel, uh, whenever these programs come into place and public uh, awareness is raised, inevitably litigation follows. Uh, that seems to be happening in, in uh, the the world of PFAS. Is that correct? Sure, yeah. I mean, there, there's litigation uh, pretty much at, at every, every theory, every, every statute, um, uh, plaintiffs, plaintiffs, law firms, states, um, it's, it's been going on for years. This is not necessarily a, a novel in that, um, PFAS litigation has just started, but it's, it's, it's been happening for many years now and it's growing, um, significantly. There are, uh, there have been recent settlements in, in many states, uh, actions brought by uh, attorneys general, like in Minnesota. And Ohio, you've got uh, you've got settlements here that are in the um, nine digits, uh, high nine digits, um, six hundred and fifty, eight hundred and fifty million dollars, and that's going to cover uh, damages, including to um, to natural resources and to cover ongoing uh, remediation or at least sampling. Um, you have um, private actions. Ohio has a, a private action going on right now, trying to certify a class. Um, trying to certify a class, Ray, get this, for everyone who has PFAS in their blood detected um, at, at a level that probably 99% or higher of the U.S. population would fit into that class. So if that doesn't boggle your mind of what sort of risks are involved um, and, and the, the stakes for such a class action, you know, I, I don't know what does. Um, New, New Jersey is, is doing is is going hard, just like they are with the regulations. They have filed suit um, against companies for specific sites. Um, one site in New Jersey has um, on-site contamination of one of the PFAS um, chemicals, PFNA, at 482,000 parts per trillion. And again, the, the uh, MCL is 13. So you're talking many orders of magnitude above the MCL uh, with offsite contamination too. That, that's a lawsuit that started in November. Um, in January of 2021, New Jersey filed suit against the federal government for three Air Force bases in New Jersey. So, you know, no, uh, no party is safe from 
um, from the wrath of PFAS litigation. That's uh, uh, good news for plaintiff's lawyers. I, I suppose, yeah. Uh, you know, it, PFAS concerns are making their way into uh, business transactions as well now. Um, it is the rare acquisition or sale of a manufacturing concern or uh, a site that historically has been used for industry that does not involve a thorough environmental investigation. And in fact, as uh, no doubt many of our listeners are aware, uh, CERCLA and many uh, state statutes provide a safe harbor for buyers uh, of industrial properties, provided they conduct what's referred to as all appropriate inquiry prior to the acquisition. Uh, and uh, the standard for an all appropriate inquiry is a phase one environmental site assessment that meets the uh, criteria set out in ASTM's 1527 standard. Uh, that protection remains in effect even if the investigation turns up contamination provided the buyer, after becoming the owner, uh, does not exacerbate existing problems, does not create new environmental conditions, cooperates with the state, and um, takes reasonable measures to address ongoing releases that may, be, may have been discovered. However, the ASTM standard today says nothing about PFAS, and a uh, word to the wise, I think, for any purchaser of, of uh, industrial property or historic industrial property would be to include uh, PFAS concerns in the phase one environmental site assessment. And of course, it isn't just the, uh, the site itself. Uh, one should be looking for red flags with respect to the neighboring properties. Are you near a military base? Is the uh, targeted property next to or near an airport? Um, what, what have been the past uses of the premises? Uh, are there PFAS in the, in the supply chains for, for that site? And you mentioned our fabric coatings, uh, food packaging, clothing, so many, so many consumer and industrial uses that employ PFAS. Uh, was there a fire at the, at the facility? Might, might this firefighting foam have been used? So it's important uh, to include PFAS these days, I believe, in, in uh, pre-acquisition due diligence. And then, of course, negotiations between buyer and seller will ensue regarding uh, uh, including protections in uh, the representations and warranties and indemnities. But this will be a this is certainly a trend now. Uh, add it to the the list of many other uh, chemicals of concern that buyers and sellers have negotiated for years now. Right, and this is just one of those areas where we don't have enough time in the day to, to talk about. The details, but I will say, Ray, that so uh, the ASTM standard is tied to circular hazardous substances, and so that's why, as you said, uh, PFAS are not part of the scope because there are no PFAS compounds currently listed as hazardous substances. That's probably going to change. Um, it will change. It'll change probably this year, starting with PFOS and PFOA. Um, so at least at a minimum, you will have. Uh, phase one consultants considering PFOS and PFOA, but that leaves the other, you know, 5,998 or whatever number of additional PFAS that need to be considered. So it's just a word to the wise that as the hazardous substance 
determinations are made that th that doesn't necessarily mean that um, you should ignore that part of it in a in a phase one. Absolutely, and again, uh, uh, I think a a prudent buyer would uh, consider those concerns today, knowing that PFAS is going to be a, a an issue for uh, site owners in the future. Right. Well, Ray, let me ask you this uh, again. Um, you you have more trips around the sun, uh, as it were. Um, you've seen trends in environmental law over the years. What does PFAS feel like to you um, compared to previous yeah. hot topics uh, that have come about? Yeah, I think what we've summarized here uh, really follows a pattern that we've seen before, but there are some uh, distinctions this go around with PFAS. Uh, but I think the pattern is, uh, you know, you can look back to see what happened when DDT came to the forefront. Asbestos, lead, PCBs, dioxin, radon, mold, they've all been, uh, had their time in the, in the uh, spotlight. And what we typically see is an identification of risks that were uh, previously either not known at all or misunderstood followed by findings of widespread use or the presence in the case of, for instance, radon and mold, uh, and hence widespread exposure, uh, public concern growing, then EPA rulemakings, uh, state rulemakings, litigation that you've, you've mentioned. But I think, so, so it's a pattern. But I think what distinguishes the PFAS uh, situation that we're seeing today is, as we've talked about, the sheer number of chemicals that fall within under the umbrella term of PFAS. The large variety of industrial sectors that have manufactured, processed, or, or used these PFAS uh, chemicals. And finally, the extent of uh, PFAS in soils, waters, and as you mentioned, in, in bloodstreams. Uh, so it's, it's a, uh, I think, a grander scale in each of those categories than what we've seen before. Right. And, and PFAS is unique. The, the, the category of PFAS is unique for many reasons. Another unique reason, and it's why things are difficult to, um, to clean up, is that PFAS are... Um, you know, some chemicals are um, highly mobile in water, but they're relatively easy to clean up. Um, PFAS is one of those chemicals that it, it's it's sort of the, the 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 holy trifecta. It's it's a complex mixture. Uh, it's very stable, uh, and it's very mobile in water. Um, so you can't treat it the way you would typically treat um, you know any other common. Uh, chemical that we're used to, PCBs and um, chlor chlorinated solvents, 1,4-dioxane, uh, um, petroleum hydrocarbons. It's, it's, it really is this almost perfect storm of complexity. Um, so I think we'll, we'll probably leave it at that. Um, maybe we'll have a, a second episode, uh, a, a part two of this at some time, Ray, and we can uh, delve into to, to more issues specifically, or um, I suspect by the time um, from the beginning of this recording to the end, there have been some changes uh, in, in the PFAS world. So there will always be updates um, to, be, to be discussed. But thank you, Ray, uh, for talking today. Uh, appreciate your insight um, into this very fascinating topic. 
Thank you, Joel, and thank you to all our listeners. <clears throat> um, so with that, if you have any questions um, about this episode or any other episode or environmental law topic, um, you can reach uh, Ray or I um, at ThompsonHine.com um, through our bios. Um, if you'd like more information about Thompson Hines Environmental Law Practice Group, please visit ThompsonHine.com. With approximately 400 lawyers in eight offices, Thompson Hine is a full-service business law firm recognized for innovation and client services. Our Smart Path approach provides clients with services that are predictable, efficient, and align with their short and long-term strategic goals. And I like to end with our um, our warning that this podcast is for informational purposes only. It provides general information and not legal advice or opinions regarding specific facts, especially in the world of PFAS. Uh, you may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast without permission. So again, thanks, Ray. Thank you to all of our listeners. Stay safe and be on the lookout for our next episode soon. Bye.